Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 8. Matthew, chapter 8. It's always a pleasure to open up the Word of God on Sunday morning and to uh, see the message that God would have us to hear. I, I like the method of study that we do because I never have to wonder from week to week what my sermon is going to be. We just look into God's Word and we follow the text and we go wherever it takes us. I, I can't imagine that I could find better subject material by searching through the Bible and picking out random passages because the Bible has order to it. I suppose that we don't find Bibles or copies of the Bibles that have all of the books put together in a random order and all the information put in random orders because God didn't intend for us to teach the Bible that way. Sometimes preachers will stop and they'll deal with a particular subject matter especially when there's a problem going on in the church. A pastor may have to deal with certain issues and may preach sermons in that way. Or he may be in a sermon series where he is trying to strengthen the people in a particular doctrine that he wants the people to know about. And I believe that's okay. I think there are times that we do need to do that. But as a normal, regular preaching method... I don't think that you can do anything better than to go straight through the Bible, book by book, go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, just seeing what God would have us to learn. Now, we find that that method helps us to cover all Bible subjects so that we don't get bogged down in a particular doctrine, a pet doctrine that we want to teach about. So we're going straight through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. That will occupy us for some time to come. And as we go through this, there aren't any doctrines that we can avoid. Now, having said that, we are in a part of Matthew that I really do think is exciting and interesting. Uh, Following Jesus around day by day leaves you amazed and marveling at what Jesus could do. And I think it's very good that we do study the life of Christ because... As much as we love him, as much as we think about him and thankful for what Christ has done for us, we do come to the place where we are just not as awed with Christ as we ought to be. And I think it's good for us to look at his life, see what he did, and we find that in the scriptures there are no dull moments in his life. He had three years of public ministry that was filled to the max because there was so much for him to do. I've read the Bible through many times, and I've yet to find Jesus on vacation. I've yet to find him wasting his time and twiddling his thumbs and wondering what he was going to do next. He has a purpose in everything that he does. And even when we come to a text like we have before us this morning, and we see Jesus sleeping just the way that Jesus slept, we can learn lessons from it. And the subject today is part number two of the message, The Taming of the Tempest. Now, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 8, stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 8 and verse number 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what we've read today. 
open up our hearts, Lord, that we might see the message that you'd have us to have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And when he was entered into a ship, the disciples followed him. Getting into that boat and sailing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee was Jesus' way of separating himself from a very busy schedule where he was preaching and teaching and healing. Now remember, we're talking here about a very short time after he'd finished the Sermon on the Mount. And after he finished that, he was deluged with people that came asking him questions and seeking to be healed. Verse number 16 of this chapter, it tells us that he healed all that were sick. The uncommon teaching of Christ, the healing ministry that he had, the blessing of thousands of people being able to be healed caused people to be attracted to Jesus, and so they followed him wherever he went. Jesus, having to deal with so many people, of course, was worn out by that. Every day, as I mentioned a moment ago, was filled with teaching and filled with the miracles that he did, filled, filled with all of the healing, and people were constantly pressing and going after Jesus, seeking for that healing. And so Jesus got very tired from that. He was both God and man. He was man, so he had a physical body, and he was worn out from this. He needed rest. And getting into the boat and spending that time on the Sea of Galilee, going to the other side, that was Jesus' way of finding a little bit of rest. Now, it's Matthew's purpose in this part of the gospel account to point out to us specific miracles that show us the power of Christ or the spectrum of his power. We've seen that he has power over man's body. He has power over man's thought. He has power over man's spirit. He has power over man's environment. And so everything that is central to man, everything that is peripheral to man, Jesus controls all of it. Now here in this miracle, we see his power over the environment. And if Jesus is the creator, if he's the one who controls the entire world, then certainly he must have power over all of his creation, over all of nature. And this was a part of the Godhead and the power of Jesus Christ that had not yet been demonstrated. And so we find it here in the miracle on the sea. Now, very briefly, I want to catch us up with what I talked about last week. We spent all of the time last week uh, developing the scene on the sea, the miracle, the... the, uh, the the time of the miracle and what actually caused it. So we discussed the scene on the sea. Uh, If you are just given the statistics of the Sea of Galilee, the size and the shape of it, you, you might not have the impression that sailing on the Sea of Galilee would be very much of a problem. The sea is not actually a sea. It's not salt water. It is, in fact, a lake. You can see all the way across it. You can get on the Sea of Galilee, and even when you're right in the middle of it, you're never going to be out of sight of land. You're not more than four miles away from the shore, no matter where you are. Some of you might be able to swim four miles. I don't know. You might have a good time doing it. So they weren't very far away from the, from the shore when they were out on the sea. But this is a a very peculiar body of water. It's one of the, or is the most unique in the world, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, but it lies in a great depression about almost 700 feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. On the sides of it, especially on the eastern side, there are mountains. Mount Hermon is to the northeast, and that is the highest peak that's around, and the snow melt from Mount Hermon actually becomes a feeder for the Sea of Galilee. 
So the high mountains and the cold air that streams down through those valleys, the hot air rising from that depression where the Sea of Galilee is down below sea level, all of those factors coming together causes these air masses to collide. And when that happens, there can be a very violent upheaval. There is no other place in the world that's like this. At one moment, the sea can be uh, peacefully serene. You may not see rain. You may not see a a storm brewing. But in a very short time, a person in a boat on the Sea of Galilee can actually be fighting for his life. And this is the way it was on this particular day. The disciples had prepared a boat, and they all climbed in. They left the shore... And when they left, it was as peaceful as it could be. And there was no reason to believe that going to the other side of the sea would be much of a problem at all. So they got into the boat, and they had no warning signs that anything was about to happen. And there was only one person in the boat on that day that knew exactly what was about to happen. And that was Jesus. So they get in, they push off from the shore, and in a matter of minutes, Jesus being tired and exhausted from his busy schedule, retired to the stern of the ship, and there he fell asleep. Just a matter of moments, he was asleep. And in verse number 24, Matthew records, while he was asleep, and behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. I think you have to get a picture here of how deeply that Jesus was sleeping. Here is a tempest that's a storm that's rocking the boat back and forth. The boat's taking on water as the water splashes up over the deck, and there's no controlling it. In fact, they were sinking, and so they were scrambling around. They're bailing out water. They're taking down the sails. They're yelling at one another. And through all of that, Jesus remained asleep. So that's the scene on the sea. They were all scrambling, not knowing what they would do next. But there was one who was sleeping, fully aware of what he would do next. So next we see then that the storm caused the desperation of the disciples. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. Matthew says here, behold. That's a word that we've seen before uh, Matthew has used it before. Earlier in the first part of this chapter, in dealing with the miracle of healing the leper, verse number 2 says, and behold, there came a leper. And that word is used in the scripture as a word of alarm. It means sit up and pay attention because what you are about to see is beyond your imagination. You can't imagine that something like this could happen. A leper came to Jesus and that was something that just didn't happen. Lepers don't approach anybody. And when Jesus touched him, Matthew said, Behold this, nobody touches a leper. Watch out for this. Pay attention to this because... Jesus is one who does something that nobody else does. And that is the sense in which we have this verse in number, or this word in verse number 24. Behold, a great tempest on the sea. Now, storms are not all that uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. They could happen at any time. But there is a special word that Matthew uses here to describe it. He says it was a tempest. In the original language, that word is actually seismos. Same word from which we get seismograph. It's the word from which we get seismic activity. And I don't think there's anybody who lives in California who doesn't know what that means. A seismograph is something that measures the intensity of an earthquake. And that is the word that Matthew used here. 
In Matthew 24, verse number 7, Matthew used this same word, and there it is actually translated as earthquake. In Matthew's gospel, he uses a word that means a whirlwind. And so as storms go on the Sea of Galilee, this was the worst that they'd ever seen. They had weathered storms before. They'd always made it safely back to shore. And they could get through those because they were experienced with sailing on the Sea of Galilee. But now Matthew says, behold. And that's because these fellows are in for the time of their life. They've not seen anything like this before. And Matthew uses this special word to describe it. And he says it's like an earthquake. It's an upheaval that is so violent and winds are blowing so hard and waves are rising so high that there is no getting out of this one. And so they were in desperation because of it. Well, what do you suppose would arise from this kind of desperation What would arise from it? Well, I would say fear. Nothing else but fear. And so we see here the anguish of their fear. And what is more anguishing than to know that you are facing the very moment of your death? I'm sure they'd had close calls before. They'd learned to be very cautious when sailing. But I don't think they'd ever come to a place where they saw that there was nothing else they could do. Nothing at all they could try. And so here they are, they're terrorized by this storm, and they knew it was a storm that they could not survive. Now again, I said they're a maximum of four miles away from the shore. And who knows, they might have been able to see the lights way off in the distance uh, there on the shores of of Galilee. But it's as if they might as well have been in the middle of the Pacific, Pacific for all the hope that they had because they're not going to make it out of this. So fear gripped them and they're frantically yelling back and forth one to another. Now when you read the separate gospel accounts, you get an understanding of what's going on. Mark records it in his account. He says, Master, carest not that we perish? One of them said that. Luke says, Master, we perish. And here in Matthew it says, Lord, save us, we perish. Is that a contradiction? What is it that they actually said? Well, they actually said all of those things. They were scrambling around. One has a recollection of one thing that was said. The other remembers what someone else said. Mark most likely got his information from Peter. And who knows, this might have been Peter telling Mark as he, as he tells the story, here's what I said, Master, don't you care that we perish? Don't you care about us? And so they were gripped with fear. And there was chaos there. And they knew that this was the end. And there was no way that they were going to get out of it. And through it all, Jesus was sleeping. They're shouting, He's sleeping. Waves are splashing everywhere. The the boat's being tossed around, bobbing up and down in the water. And Jesus is there in utter tranquility, fast asleep, calm as a cucumber, because he knew there was nothing for any of them to be afraid of. Now, you see, Jesus is the one who made that depression in the earth. He's the one who made such a place where a storm could occur. He made this bowl of water. And he created all the conditions that were necessary to bring a storm. And I firmly believe that he's the one who sent this storm and he had a purpose in it. He wanted to bring these disciples to the point of desperation. This storm has to be so bad that they know they're staring death in the face. And he does it to prove a point that he controls it all. Now the greatest fear that any person can ever face is really no match for Jesus. Now, I I don't know what kind of things that you're afraid of. It's probably different for all of us. 
But there are people that are, are in great fear today. People are in fear about their health. I mean, there are some who, who couldn't bear the thought that they would hear the doctor use the C word. They're afraid of that. Some can't bear uh, facing financial ruin, losing their house or worrying about another meal. Some people would rather die than to face things like that. And then there are some who are afraid of this. They're afraid of death itself. Even Christians are afraid of death because we've never been there before. We don't know anything about it. Uh, we read in the Bible what lies beyond, but, but we're afraid of death because we've never experienced that before. And those kinds of fears, no matter what they are, they can be devastating to people. And if you don't know, know Christ, you can actually drown in those fears. Fear can be debilitating. It makes you miserable and you just sit around and you wait for the next shoe to fall. You don't know what's going to happen. And that is the point that Jesus wants you. He wants you to look around and see that you have no hope. What Jesus tries to do is to break your, and he will do, is to break your self-dependence. He wants you to stop trusting in yourself. And so if you don't come to that point of desperation where you're actually leaning on him for everything, he'll bring you to that point. He'll cause something to come into your life where you don't have anything else that you can do, but you can beg for his help. And what he wants you to know is that it's impossible for you to pilot your boat through the storms. And so there comes a time when you have to give up all hope of any other way. And when you do that that's when you'll find the power of Jesus. William Ernest Henley, that old reprobate poet from the 19th century, wrote these words. He said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But when he died, he found out that he mastered nothing. When death came, he found out he was not in control. And there he was, piloting his own boat in a whirlpool, being flushed down the drain and going straight to the bottom. Well, these disciples then had come to a place of hopelessness, and so they go to the stern of the ship where Jesus is sleeping, and they begin to shake him. And they say, Master, save us. Master, we perish. Master, don't you care that we're about to drown? Now, why do you think that they thought Jesus could do anything about it? Here are seasoned fishermen. They have hours of time on the sea. They've handled boats before. They've been in the storms. It's a common thing that happens on the Sea of Galilee. Every time they've been through it, they, they made it back to shore. So they didn't need any help before. So they're seasoned sailors, and they go back to the back of the ship to wake up a carpenter. Get the carpenter on his feet. I mean, surely a carpenter knows how to get a boat to shore. Well, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? They lived in Capernaum right next to the sea. They're the ones that had experience with boats. Jesus is from Nazareth. He's quite a way off. He doesn't know that much about boats, does he? So they have the experience, not him. But they wake him up. And I guess they were probably thinking, we don't know what to do. There's nothing we can do here. We might as well take a shot at him. So they rouse him. They get him awake. The waves are crashing in, the boat is listing, the deck is full of water, wind is ripping the sails. And so Jesus is shaken awake by the disciples and he jumps to his feet and he says, every man for himself, put on your life jackets, get on your life jackets, we're going to drown. Mercy me, what are we going to do? That's not what he said. Jesus said, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? And so he asked them about their absence of faith. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? 
Now, those of you that come on the Sunday mornings to the Sunday morning forum class, you'll often hear me say this. Now, those of you that come or, or don't come, I'll explain it to you. It's a question and answer session. And uh, people ask any questions that they want in Sunday morning forum class. So I often say this, ask anything that you want because there aren't any dumb questions. Well, excuse me for just a moment. I mean, if there was an earthquake shaking this building and the plaster's falling off the walls and these beams start to come down and you say to me, why are you afraid? I'd say, yeah, that's a dumb question. Well, Jesus woke up in this seismic hurricane event and he says to the disciples, why are you afraid? Now, was that a dumb question? Let's take a moment to assess that. What had these disciples seen? Well, thousands of miracles have been done. We haven't gone through all of those. We've only actually talked about three miracles previous to this one. But there were actually thousands of ones that he did. Lepers were healed. The blind could see. The lame could walk. The deaf could hear. Devils had been cast out. I mean, freaky demonic spirits that cause contortions in people. Uh, We read in the scriptures where sometimes devils threw people into the fire. Demonic spirits that had the strength of hundreds of men, they were cast out. And Jesus had the power just to throw them out like weaklings. And get this, the people had also seen him raise others from the dead. They'd seen people die. And Jesus just came along and said, well, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And so now, why are you afraid? That, that doesn't seem like such a dumb question after all, does it? Why are you afraid when you've seen all that I can do? Why are you afraid, O oh, ye of little faith? Luke puts it this way, where is your faith? Now, that's a pretty good question. Where is your faith? How can you see all that's been done, and yet you have fear? Where's your faith? Now, we have a lot of things that make us afraid, don't we? I mean, we worry about things. We stay up all night trying to figure stuff out. And God says, where is your faith? You know, I think you have to look at it this way. There is so much wickedness in the world. I mean, you go to bed at night, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on out there. You know what? I mean, there's a lot of things to be afraid of out there. Some of the neighborhoods that we live in, uh, you never know what's going to happen next. You think about all the demons that are out there. I mean, there are demons lurking around every corner. Uh, no, no telling how many demons there are. We're going to talk about that next week. But all these demons that are out there, and yet you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning. And the next morning you wake up, and the next morning you wake up, and the next morning. It's a pretty good question. Why are you afraid when you know that God is always there and God has been protecting you? Where is your faith? How did you get this far? I mean, what's God done for you? I mean, is there, is there anybody that could do anything on their own? When, when the Bible says, the Scripture says, He's the one that gives us life and breath and all things. It's, not, it's a good question. Where is your faith? Or why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Now, we do notice here that He says, ye of little faith. So there was some faith here. It was weak. But remember, we have disciples that are in training. And when you become a Christian, you don't come into the Christian life knowing everything there is to know. Faith gets built by experience. And so that's why God brings many of these things into our lives. It's because our faith gets built by experience. And what these disciples are in is one whale of an experience. 
And so now it's time to train their faith so he doesn't have to ask them again, where is your faith? So next we come to then the marvel at the miracle. Verse 26 says, And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled and said, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You know, it's kind of, I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus didn't just jump up all at once and say, Peace be still. You know, Mark records it this way. He says, And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, he said that probably as calmly as the sea was afterwards. But the remarkable thing that we see here in the book of Matthew is the total lack of alarm in Jesus. What he wanted to do was to converse a little bit first. Now, he was doing some teaching here of the disciples because he wasn't afraid. Everything's safely under control. You know, I think about when we have a wildfire here in California that you'll get the news reports. And the news report will first come out and say, there's a wildfire that's burning out of control. And then you get an update on that. Well, they're getting the fire under control. And then finally they say the fire is under control. But we don't see any of that here. There are no degrees of control. Jesus was first, last, and always in control of this situation. And so he wasn't worried about drowning. Wasn't worried about calming it immediately. Not until he'd made his point to the disciples. Now they're probably thinking when they wake him up, Jesus, if you can do anything about it, now would be a pretty good time. Uh, save the object lesson to a little bit later. We'll talk about the thing later. Why don't you just do something about it now? No, Jesus was in control, and so he wanted to make his point first. Then when he was done with that, when he was done with the teaching, he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. Now here is something I think that is so remarkable that we just have to take note of it, and that is the power of the word. You know, I, I could stop right here and make a whole other sermon about this and go on for a long, long time just talking to you about the power of the Word. Now, if you look in the first chapter of Genesis, you only get three verses in, and the Word of God says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse number 6, And God said. Verse number 9, And God said. Verse number 11, And God said. And verse number 14, And God said. Verse 20, And God said. Verse 24, And God said. Verse 26, And God said. And then in verse 29, And God said. And when God was through saying, there was a universe with order and precision. There were plants and there were rainforests. There were fish in the sea. There were animals on dry land. There were amphibians that could go either place. And there was a man and there was a woman. And all of it came at the spoken word of God. Now what God is letting us know is that there is power in his word. And when God speaks, you had better sit up and listen because God always has something important to say. His word is powerful. His word is powerful enough to speak the worlds into existence. And this Bible right here, folks, that we read, that we study on Sunday mornings, that we will not fail to preach in this church, this Bible has the power, the Word of God has the power to change your life, to change your soul, to get you through every storm that you've ever been in. God's Word brings peace to the human heart. So Jesus stood up and he rebuked the winds and the waves. He spoke the Word and there was an immediate calm. 
You know, I've read a lot of commentators who make much of this particular phrase in the Scripture where it says, then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And they make a point of this, saying that what Jesus did was he stood up in the boat and he was rebuking Satan. That Satan was the cause of the storm that was on the sea. I'll have to tell you, I disagree with that. I believe that this storm, Jesus brought himself. He created that storm on the sea and he stilled the storm on the sea with just the word. He created it, and he killed it. So it was the power of his words that did it. And what's the reaction to this? Well, the word of God says they marveled. What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And there, you're going to find the purpose of the miracle. Now we get the point of the calm, and then of the storm, and then of the fear, and then of their faith. And that's to show them this, that they are actually in the presence of God. The presence of God is what this miracle is all about. In verse number 25, they had reached that point of desperation. They had no hope. The sea was too rough. The waves were too high. Their expertise was too little. And so they said, Lord, save us. We perish. And how will he do it? How will he save them? Well, it came because of a, their faith activated the demonstration. And now he'll show them this much-needed lesson. He's asleep on the pillow, unconcerned about the storm, unnerved about the tossing of the boat. Waves are splashing in his face. And you know, friend, that the waves were splashing in the face of the God-man. And that's why they didn't need to fear. They were in the presence of God. And so Matthew writes this down so we have the undeniable, unforgettable proof that he is God. You know, you think for a moment of all the things that people can fix. You know, I'm not too good with my hands. I I really can't fix too many things. My wife fusses at me, but I can't fix too many things. I know people who can. Brother Bob can fix my car. Brother Grant came and fixed my door. Brother Lino came and fixed the light in my office. It took a while, but he did get there, and he did fix it. Dave Sharon can fix the flagpole, but we're not going to go there. Uh, Gary, I heard him over there clearing his throat. <laughs> Gary was a was a counselor and has done that for many years, and I know that he's fixed a lot of relationships. You know, I, I maybe I can fix some things. You you come and ask Bible questions, and sometimes I can fix your mis- misunderstandings of some things. But we talk a lot about a lot of things that can be fixed. Did you ever turn on your television and watch the Channel 5 weather person? And she says, well, you know, tomorrow it's going to be rainy. Tomorrow it's going to be windy. So get out your umbrellas, drive carefully. Those roads are going to be slick. And then she says, no, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. No, tomorrow it's not going to rain. I'll fix that for you. See, I'll take this little cloud over here and I'll move Mr. Sun over in its place. And so tomorrow it's not going to rain. You know, what I'd advise you to do, take your umbrella and, and drive carefully on the slick roads because it's going to rain. And the reason it's going to rain is because we can't control the weather. We can't do anything about that. We can fix a lot of things, but we can't change the weather. To get the point of what Jesus is trying to show them here, there's a lot of things that you can do, but you can't do this. You can't do what God can do. And so the disciples surely got this point. They said, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, there is what you call a rhetorical question. 
you don't need to answer that one because the answer to it is self-evident. What kind of man does this? Well, not a man at all unless he's the God-man, unless he's also God. And there is the purpose of the miracle. He controls the physical man, the mental man, the spiritual man, the spirit world, the demon world, and he controls the entire physical world. Now, at this point, the thing that struck them the most is, if he can do this, then he can do anything. What manner of man is this? He can heal lepers. What manner of man is this? He can, he can heal people without even being present there. What manner of man is this that he's, he's concerned enough that he would even heal a woman and a mother-in-law at that? What kind of a man is this? He cast out demons. And astonishingly, amazingly, marvel of all marvels, what manner of man is this? The winds and the sea obey him. Now, what Jesus did later was to give them the power to heal the sick, and he gave them the power even to raise people from the dead. He gave them the power to cast out demons. But when Paul was sailing that, on that ship to Rome on the way to see Caesar... The storm arose on the sea, and the ship got stuck on the rocks, and the waves beat against it, and the ship was broken in two. And not once did the Apostle Paul stand up on that ship and say, Peace, be still, and calm the waves and calm the storm. He couldn't do it. But he did know somebody who could do it. He knew Jesus Christ. He'd met him before. He'd heard these stories also that the disciples told. He knew the power of God. And this is why, when writing about Jesus, he said, God hath exalted him and given him a name that is above every name and that his na- at his name every knee must bow. And you remember these words we read from Colossians last week when Paul said, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And as I said last week, that makes him totally different from what the Mormons claim that he is. He's different from what the Jehovah Witnesses claim that he is because he is the eternal God. So a miracle. Now at the same time, Jesus still asks us, why are you afraid? Why do you have such little faith? And that is not a dumb question. The song says this, when the world that I've been living in collapses at my feet, when my life is shattered and torn, though I'm windswept and battered, I can cling to his cross and find peace in the midst of my storm. There is peace in the midst of my storm-tossed life. Oh, there's an anchor. There's a rock to cast my faith upon. Jesus rides in my vessel, so I'll fear no alarm. He gives me peace in the midst of the storm. Now, there, friends, is the reason for the miracle. When you place your faith in him, that's when he gives you peace in the midst of your storm. Well, someday you're going to face a storm that you can't navigate. Some of you might even be facing a storm like that right now. You don't know what to do. You don't know a way out of it. What are you afraid of? Because the biggest fear that you can ever face is not a match for Jesus. And some of you, I'm sad to say, you are facing a storm of judgment. Now, I think back to chapter 7 and what Jesus said about the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Jesus said there's a storm coming. And he said the fall 
of that house is going to be great. And what he meant was that that man had not built his life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. He had not built his life upon this one who speaks upon the words of Christ and says things like, peace be still. And so he said that when the storm comes, that man whose life is built in the wrong place will be destroyed. And there he's talking about the fires of hell. Beyond that storm, the storm of judgment comes the fires of hell. Now, the very same thing is true in this story. If Jesus was not in the boat, then all hope is lost. Here are men that are at their best on the sea. These are men that are seasoned fishermen. They've been through it before. They watched him go to sleep. And as he went to sleep, they were saying to him, Sleep on. In just a few minutes, we'll have you safely on the other side. And in just a few minutes, they were violently shaking him up and saying, Lord, save us. And friends, there's what you need to hear today. Lord, save us. And more particularly, Lord, save me. The Word of God says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As surely as they had hope, as they were on the sea sailing there, and the storm arose, and they woke him up, and they said, Save us. As surely as they were saved, the Word of God teaches us that if you don't know Christ, if you have a storm in your life, if judgment is coming, that all that you ever need to do is call on the name of the Lord, and the Word of God says, you shall be saved. I hope you know that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're able to be here today and to look into your Word. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who has come to still the storm in our life. All of us are facing the judgment one day, and we're thankful, Lord, that you were able to do something about that judgment, that you came and you gave your life, that you died on the cross to save us from our sins. And so we can say with all assurance to every person here today, if they will just call on you, they will be saved. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to some heart today and help them to realize that Jesus can be their Savior today if they'll just call on Him. And then we pray for Christians that are going through many different things in their lives. And the question is here, as Jesus said, why are you afraid? He's able to handle everything that comes into our lives. So Lord, help us to depend on you, to come to you now, to have you save us now because you have the power to do it. Speak to our hearts today as we sing and we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.